0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Right here. We don't just got something to say, y'all.
0: Welcome Truth Seekers, you're listening to A Measure of Truth on BlogTalkRadio.com and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on BlogTalkRadio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call, the number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can tweet me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash A Measure of Truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Cherise Carney-Nunez is an award-winning author of the children's books, I Am Barack Obama, Dream for You, A World, A Covenant for Our Children, and Nappy, as well as Songs of Sister Mom, Motherhood Poems. I Am Barack Obama recently won a 2009 Honor Award from Skipping Stones Multicultural Magazine. Sharice is the founder of a publishing company, Brand New Words LLC, where she sold over 18,000 books and now concentrates on digital publishing. She's a senior officer of the Jamestown Project, an action-oriented think tank focusing on democracy. A Diamond Life member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated and a graduate of Harvard Law School where she was a schoolmate of President Barack Obama, Harvard Kennedy School of Government and Lincoln University in Pennsylvania where she was Poet Laureate. Cherise has served as a speaker or presenter for numerous national and regional organizations and has appeared on Inside Edition, ABC News Now, CBS's CW Network, Comcast Eight, Radio One, and American Urban Radio Networks. And now on blogtalkradio.com, Cherise Carney-Nunez, welcome to A Measure of Truth.
2: Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here this evening.
0: Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, I first heard about you from watching a YouTube video about um, book reviews called The Book Look.
1: Oh. Yeah,
0: and um, then I find out um, that you yourself are an author and a poet and so many other things. So just tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing and all, all the things that you're involved in right now.
2: Well, thank you so much again for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. I am really excited, especially this week, because I am going to be at the Reginald uh, Lewis Museum. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to be one of the featured authors. They're having an African-American children's book fair on Saturday, May 4th, from 1 o'clock to 4 p.m. So, Michael, if you could encourage your listeners to come on down. We would love to see them there um uh, it's a free free admission to the book fair um there's going going to be lots of activities um there's going to be i think a harlem harlem globe tro former harlem globe trotter there um Charles Smith will be out there and numerous other authors and lots of children's activities and so I'd love to meet some of you in person so come on uh, out to the Reginald Lewis Wax Museum on Saturday.
0: And where's that located?
2: That is, let's see, what is the address? It's in Baltimore and you mm-hmm. can just check it out their website is rflewismuseum.org and it's um it's it's out of Baltimore. Um, I believe it's on East Pratt Street.
0: Okay, awesome. And we'll definitely find a link for that. We'll post that on my Facebook page as well.
2: That would be great. That would be great.
0: Now, when you first started um, writing, were, were all of your works geared towards children?
2: Well, to be honest with you, when you say when I first started, I have been writing since I was in the third grade.
0: Uh, So the answer would be yes.
2: (laughs) You know, I say that because writing has always really been a part of my life. Um, When I go out and I speak to children, I often ask them, how many of you are authors? How many of you are authors? And if they don't all raise their hand, I explain to them that if they write in a journal, they're an author. If they um, have something on their mind and they write a poem, they're an author. So I really have been writing uh, for quite some time. It's really the way that I express myself. Uh, When I was in college, I really, well, really, I would say when I was in high school, uh, I probably wrote a poem almost every day. Wow. Uh, I wrote for my friends, I wrote uh for myself, I wrote for my family. And then when I got to college, um I went to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania and even though I uh majored in the sciences, I really was one of those left brain, right brain people and mm-hmm. I um I did a lot of writing there as well and I was the poet laureate. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't write just for children. I really wrote primarily just uh I, I wrote my thoughts down and so I wrote a, a lot about what I was going through. I I wrote uh, I remember my winning one of my winning poems uh from that time was a, a a time when um I wrote about a time when my family had experienced some racism in um mm-hmm. in Maplewood, New Jersey where I grew up where um, they wrote the N-word on our house, so I, I wrote a poem about that. Wow. So really I wrote, a, I, I, and I write about anything and everything.
0: Hmm. Now you have a book of poetry as well, Now, um, and a number of children's books. Mm-hmm. The Songs of a Sister Mom, Motherhood Poems. I guess that's not necessarily a, a book of points for children, but tell us what inspired that. I'm assuming it's your own experience as well as what you've experienced in your life, in your relationship with your mother.
2: Exactly. Well, what what that was is I, when I became a mom uh, in 1999, it blew my mind. I was going along in my career. I'm a lawyer. Mm-hmm. and um, I really didn't have a lot of time for creative writing, but I always wrote, of course. And as a lawyer, you're doing a lot of writing. But when I became a mom, it really, really changed my life, and uh, it was such a, such a, uh, a, an overwhelming job to be responsible for not only the health but the 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 well-being um of this child and and her, the way her personality was was developing everything about her and so whenever i have a lot on my mind what i've always done is write things down and so i wrote and i wrote and i wrote and i wrote and the next thing you know i had this book i had enough of, i had enough for a book and that book was songs of a sister mom I kind of made a deal with my husband. He gave me some mommy time. I had mm-hmm. an hour. I had an hour a day, and next thing I knew, I had this book. And the book is really about the four. I call them the four phases of um, of motherhood. It goes from poems about love, um, black love. Just powerful black love, which hopefully prayerfully is the foundation of of motherhood. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote um, poems about pregnancy and childbirth and then poems about the craziness of being a mother. And then finally, it ends with poems about kind of larger life issues. And so that's really how – I call it my writing renaissance because I Mm -hmm. really got back into writing when I um, focused on and completed that book, Songs of a Sister Mom. So that's kind of what started me off. And then you had asked about the children's aspect. and Oh, yeah. But before we
0: get to that, you know, you you said a little something and we – I can – here our listeners now on um, black love. You have to define that. You have to let people know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, intrinsically, what is black love?
2: Mm, well, you know, one of my poems um, in that book, actually, I wish I had it or I would share it with you. Mm, uh, maybe I'll try, for for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to pull it up for you. I'll try to pull it up for you. But really, yeah. uh, you know, I I I think when i think about black love um i think about when you uh, the love between a man and a woman that actually it harkens back to our ancestors and what we have been through what they have been through to help us just get to where we are right now to help us really understand each other on this deeper level when you look at everything that has been uh, taken away from us over the years to try to keep us apart, and yet and still we go through all that we go through to maintain the relationship that we have with each other today that's really mm. how um you know I think about my relationship with my husband I've been married for seventeen years now. Mm and it's not easy it's not easy and we often have to call on the strength of our ancestors when we think about how we're going to make it through and right. we do
0: wow so you you pretty much defined it for me um black love goes beyond romance and it's based in loyalty
2: it's based in loyalty i think it's based in um in, in trust it's based in honoring um, our spirits.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 Wow. Yeah,
0: and, you know, it, it's interesting you to say that. And I, and I love hearing stories of um, longstanding married couples who have that strong, dynamic relationship um, because it's missing so much in our, our culture today. And um, there are a, a number of people, too, that I've been in connection with and that featured on the show that just focused strictly on that.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: uh, it's interesting. Um, I'll have to put you in contact with some of those folks. I think that you'll be interested in some of the work they're doing as well. Now, you were getting ready to get into um, the children's poems, not the children's poems, but the children's stories, and you're writing for a child. Tell us a little bit how that's different in writing for someone who's, um, you know, a, a young or a child who has a different way of seeing the world. How do you write for a child?
2: Well, actually, my first children's book is called Nappy. And that actually, Michael, was a poem that I had originally written for adults. I I changed it a little bit just out of um, respect for for our 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 littlest ones, uh, mm-hmm. there were a few concepts in there that I changed around a little bit, but primarily, I kept it the same. I think mm-hmm. it 's really important when you speak to children to definitely as i say um respect their age and the fact that they are developing in the world. But I think of paramount importance is that you don't sugarcoat things too much and that you Mm -hmm. tell the truth. Truth, as they say, will set you free. And I consider myself in so many ways really a translator. I take a really difficult concepts sometimes and just think of ways to express those to children. Uh, I did that in my children's book, Nappy. I really um, did it in my children's book, I Dream. It's called I Dream for You a World, A Covenant for Our Children. In that book, I took the covenant with Black America that I'm sure you're. Uh, your listeners are familiar with, which was the book by um, Tavis Smiley that was released released a few years back, mm. and I actually translated that, if you will, for children. Um, oh. We came up with a with a um, a children's version of the covenant, and it was poetry, and it used um, collage and art. And it was centered around the same ten covenants that Chavis Smiley had originally set forth in his covenant for black America, but explained it for uh, in ways that children could understand and actually gave very specific action steps that children could do to really um make those principles, um, understand those principles in a way, uh, how, make it real for for, for children and, and for them, giving them some ideas on how they can help make it real for their families.
0: Wow. And, and I see a lot of your interaction with children and some of your events. And tell us how you, the children themselves respond to your work and, and what do they say to you?
2: Oh, I have wonderful, wonderful um reactions from children. I think it's because Michael, like I said, I really try to speak directly to the children, I'll get on the floor, Um, or if I, you know, I'll bring the child up to me, even with my own children, I'll get my son to stand on, him. he's eight, I'll get him to stand on the chair to talk to me, Uh, because it's Mm -hmm. really important to meet people where they are, and children are are people. One of my favorite, favorite um, sayings that I always keep in mind is that children may be um less than half of our um uh, really less than 30% of our population but they are 100% of our future.
0: Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, it's so important that we 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 make them feel special. We we show them respect when we we Honor them by actually educating them in the right ways and and sharing with them the things that are most important that they really need to know. We need to tap into that side of their psyche as well to help them to understand the, the bigger picture. So um, things like that, I think, are very important. And, and your work is extremely important with what you do with children as well as the um, the literature you publish. So, you know, I just have to give you kudos for that before I get Thank off topic you. and forget to do that. But, Thank um, you. When, when I first heard about, when, well, let's go ahead and let everyone know, it was Manda. Raquel Webb, who has brought me so many amazing interviews, <laughs> who, who told me about you. Yes, we do. And um, and when she mentioned what you were about, and you know, told me about you and your husband, and I, I just said, "Yes, let's just get them on." So I want everyone to know this was a, a rush to to air as well. <laughs> so you know, I I could not wait to have you on, you know, to be able to share some of the things that you do. Um. It, do you, you have an up-and-coming event at the museum, but um, generally speaking, you do uh, book fairs as, and other um, activities as well around the city and um, speaking at um, other groups. So tell us about some of those.
2: Okay. Well, I have spoken really all over the country, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spoken um, certainly in the D.C. and uh, Baltimore area. I'm originally from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I definitely uh, have to big up my, my my people from Jersey. I grew up there, and I've spoken in New Jersey. I've spoken in um, New York, of course. I'm from northern Jersey. I've spoken out in California, Chicago. Uh, I really have done quite a bit of traveling, and it's been really good to be able to to, to touch people in this way. Um I also have had the opportunity through the work that I've done um, with the Jamestown Project, which is a think tank out of um, Harvard Law School that focuses on democracy. I've had the opportunity to um, to serve as a as a guest presenter, um, sit on panels, um, be, be invited on radio shows like this one to talk and um just really just share my um sh- share my version of the world i've speak i've spoken to um to groups um Jack and Jill has been um, a great audience for me um various events that have been done in libraries and um uh, universities so it's it's been great, and I really get the the most joy when I actually can can actually just speak directly to children
0: mm. awesome now um you have Your own publishing company, Brand New Words. And um, tell us why you decided to take that step. You know, I'm sure your books have been published um, through probably a publishing company, at least the first one or two. But what was it about that process that made you understand that you would have to do this for yourself?
2: Wow. Well, let me tell you, all of my books are actually independently published. Wow, what you're what just too Which,
0: sharp for me. You're all just too of my sharp. books are independently
2: published, and let me tell really? you why. Because I've mm. been um, independently publishing, as I, I like to say it, um, or self-publishing from the very beginning. Um, mm. And the reason why is um, I, I really never went the traditional publishing route. Um, the, the 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 first of all, I, I was a busy mom when I wanted to get my my word my words out when I published Songs of a Sister Mom. That was um, a book of poetry. Now I want to ask you. You know, when was the last time you ran out and got a, a you know, the latest book of poetry?
0: Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I'm
2: turning the tables it, it, on it, you. It,
0: well, it's been sent to me. <laughs> right. Fortunately for me, when I when I really love someone's work, but yeah, I, I know where you're going with that because most of the the literature I purchase even now is through you know online. That's right,
2: button. and so you know, it's 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 what you have to what 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 your listeners I hope really have to understand, especially those of you out there who are interested in publishing your own um, or, or having your works published, is that. You have to think about the marketability of your work. And so I knew that most people don't run out and buy the latest book of poetry, no matter how great it is. uh, Even the the greatest poets, people are not running out. Even as soon as Maya Angelou releases a new book, most people don't run out and get it. And so I had to think, okay, what can I do? Um, and what I decided to do was to write a book um, to take the poems that I that I have poems about lots of different things but I pulled together what I thought was a marketable concept and then I just decided to put it out there myself Um, so that was really how I did it the first time and then when I took one of those poems which was nappy nappy was originally a poem in that book songs of a sister mom Um, nappy Michael ended up having a life of its own. Um, mm-hmm. It was about mm-hmm. doing my little girl's hair. And mm-hmm. I would go around and and, um, and deliver that poem. And one day a lady actually said, girl, my hair is nappy. I was in my church. <laughs> I, she was so inspired. And then she pulled off her wig and told me her hair was nappy. And I said, okay, this has a life of its own, I think. It deserves its own space. And so I took Nappy and I said, okay, I'm going to turn this into a children's book. And I I thought about trying to get it published at that point. And I even had some folks tell me that I really would have um, a pretty good shot. But at that point, I had already started my own publishing company. And I just didn't want to, to lose energy. I didn't want to slow down. And so I just decided I was going to forge ahead. And plus, it was really at the beginning of what I saw as a change that was afoot in the field of publishing. Mm -hmm. Um, I I had really, really good friends that I had gone to law school with, um, including the president. (laughs) Um, who had – who? and I know you'll get back to that, but honestly, at the time, Michael, it was him, it was um, um, Hill Harper, uh, another friend of mine, Keith Boykin, and they had all had books. And I didn't see huge marketing budgets that the publishing companies were putting behind those books. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow. I mean, at the time – President Obama was, uh, I believe he was in the Senate, no, I I believe it was when he was a state senator, Um, and then also, uh, you know, Hill Harper was acting, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm just, you know, a mom with a regular old job, if they're not putting big marketing budgets behind them, I know I won't be getting a big marketing budget, and so if I'm not getting that type of support from my publishing company, then what am I going to get from them? I know they can give distribution, but I was able to get a distribution contract. And so I kind of just decided to go out on my own. And that's how it happened.
1: Wow.
0: And um, so I'm sure there was a learning curve in in starting your own company. Um, Was it always did you have other um, authors as well on board, or from the beginning did you just start with publishing your own works?
2: It definitely was a learning curve. I mean, I've done a lot of really difficult things in my life, and this really was um, way at the top of the list. Um, so what I did was I, I read everything. I, I read everything. I um uh, another one of the the um, another one of my author friends. His name is Kwame Alexander, and at the time, Kwame was giving a course on how to publish your own work. I took Kwame's course. It was called "Do the Right Thing." Right thing. W R I T. Ah,
1: nice. <laughs>
2: and um, I, so I took his course. I I just soaked up any and all information that I could and I just forged ahead. Um, I only published my own work because I was intimately um, involved and familiar, of course, with my own work, and I really wanted to focus on getting it right. Um, if you are going to forge out, out there and, and and publish your own work, you have to think marketing, marketing, marketing. What are you publishing? Why are you publishing it? Who is your audience? How are you going to get the word out about that? And so that's why I really wanted to Um, you know, maintain a focus and target my own work. And so that's really what I have continued to do, although I have done um, at least one project for another author. And I may be open in the future, but um, the publishing field has really, really changed over the past few years.
0: Yeah, and it's changing rapidly. Rapidly. um, Yeah. And, And, you know, it's great to get out there first. And um, get ahead of the curve, so to speak, so that, you know, when, when you're established, there's so much knowledge you have. You can really follow the trends instead of looking at everything, both um, the right and the wrong way at the same time. You've got a, a, a narrow vision to be able to, to move forward and be successful. When you're innovative and you get out there first while this thing is still shaping itself.
2: Uh, I would definitely agree with that, Um, and I'll tell you, I'm really um, blessed to have made that decision back in 2000, and I guess my first book was published in 2005, and um, I feel very blessed to have made the decision to go out on my own then and to have had the foresight to really see how the how the um you know the the marketing budgets were shrinking for new and um, unknown authors and um you know to really just forge ahead at that time and so now fast forward to 2013 and i really have been out there doing this for a while and i have uh, been able to see the the shift and the and the and the change and the trends in this up close and personal
0: yeah so now um Let's let's get back to your your time in college and at um Harvard University. What was it like for you back then um as a young African American female entering into this um you know, this mega college in most people's minds that, you know, is the pinnacle of success. So <laughs> tell us, I mean, what was that like?
2: That's an interesting – I have not been asked that question uh, when I'm talking about my book, so thank you for – I I do have an answer.
1: Oh, um, <laughs> I really uh, want to
2: know. Yeah, I do have an answer, too. I I came from um historically black college. I, mm-hmm. I, I graduated from Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, um, which, by the way, is the alma mater of Thurgood Marshall, which helped to um, – in in my – it helped he was sort of a um an icon for me um as a writer coming out of Lincoln University um but also Thurgood Marshall as I was moving into the field of law uh he he was a, a graduate of Lincoln University and I love Lincoln University very committed to my HBCU family um there had not been anyone uh who had come who had gone to Harvard um Law school, certainly, and I, I believe um, Harvard, to all the graduate schools, there had not been anyone who had done that in a, from Lincoln in about 20 years, I believe, when I went. So when you when you say, what was it like, I, it wasn't even on my radar screen that I would be able to um, achieve something like that. It, it really was not... I think on the radar screen of myself, nor any of my friends, nor any of my sorors, we just, it, it just was not on my radar screen. So to have actually been able to achieve that, I was just, it's not that I didn't think I could do it, it's just that it wasn't even on my radar screen. And if it was not for um honestly i will say um there was a, there happened to be an african american woman at uh the kennedy school of government which is the other graduate school i went to at at um at at harvard who called up uh, one of the professors at lincoln and said our 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 class is not diverse enough our applicant pool is not diverse enough and she called him up a professor at lincoln and said do you have any students who you think can do the work here at Harvard? And he sent her my information, and that's wow. how uh, that's how it, I, I became even aware of the opportunity to apply.
0: Yeah, so now and I, I was very
2: lucky, Michael, because it, mm. it brought me to Harvard at a really good time.
0: Absolutely! Wow, yeah. what an opportunity! And um, you know, it's not always about the opportunity, but it's also about the discipline it takes to recognize your opportunity and make the most of it as well. So kudos for that as well. Um, I I know some folks who have gone to Harvard, but they didn't graduate, you know, so it, it's not, you know, I, I understand the challenge that it could be for a number of reasons. And, um, you know, well, tell us about your experience because i saw some pictures there with um you and the president as well as um seems like um some distance in years between those two sets of photos
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: so um as i said um i i i was blessed by uh those events to have gone to harvard i, I ended up starting in 19 um 88 <clears throat> that was a great year to have started. I'm just so lucky because mm. um I now can can actually claim um president obama as um a schoolmate. I started um at the Kennedy School of Government um that year and then I went on to the law school. So I was class of 91 and he and uh, some of my other fr- I was class of 92 and he and some of my other friends were class of 91. Uh, I stayed there for four years to get two degrees. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just, I I was very active um, in the Black Law Students Association. President Obama was actually a member of the Black Law Students Association. Um, It was also a great time there because he was um, elected as the first black president of the Harvard Law Review, Mm -hmm. and that was just such a momentous occasion uh, because in all of the years at uh w- that the Harvard Law Review has existed there had never been an uh a president who was African American and he broke down that 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 barrier He was the first and we were so proud of him as other um black students at Harvard Law School um I remember and actually, um, the picture that I think you uploaded to your website—it was from uh, one evening when um, I um, was the president of both I was the incoming president of the Black Law Students Association, and we had asked President Obama, then president of the Law Review, to speak. To um, we were having a formal dinner that evening, and he he gave the address. Um, and he gave a rousing speech, and I'll I'll, I'll add uh, for uh, some critics who may be listening that he had no teleprompter,
1: <laughs> didn't exist. <laughs> he had
2: no notes; they didn't exist either. He mm-hmm. just spoke from his heart, and he really, um, really impacted us and changed us and inspired us. He he spoke about not letting Harvard change you. And um, it was an amazing speech, and even back then. And I can't say that we knew for a fact that he would become the president, but certainly we knew that there was something extraordinary and special about this man.
0: Mm. Wow. Now, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that as well. What did he really mean? As he's speaking to other um African Americans about not letting Harvard change you, tell us a little bit about that
2: so the way I interpreted what he meant and mm-hmm. um uh you know his his history was that he was um a community organizer he had done that before he went uh before he had come. Uh, to 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 return to school to to Harvard, so he had already had that experience of working for the community and actually recognizing that um, the law is in fact a tool it 's a tool for social justice, a tool for change, a tool to impact communities and so I think that um, it was it was also his third year of of law school, and he was on his way out and I believe it was just a message that that um, that he wanted to share uh as as really a charge to um those of us who this awesome um responsibility had been um you know had been given with this 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 degree this Harvard law degree to take it and um to take the opportunity and the responsibility and go forth in the world and do good and i've really tried to live my life by that
0: wow Yeah, and I'm sure even then um, he spoke in such a way that you would never forget that was uh, penetrating to your soul to really, you know, help you to understand with passion just how important those things are. And to, you know, African-Americans and, you know, Americans on the whole, you know, that you would be not only an example, but be able to leave your mark on this world with something that will be
2: outstanding. Absolutely. 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 And I certainly have tried to um infuse that um it, that 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 it, you know that line of thinking um that and that, that that passion, that sense of responsibility, uh that um I I've infused that into into all of my work.
0: Mm. Now um We want to give you an opportunity to be able to dig up that poem. So I have some (laughs) pre-recorded content that I can go ahead and play and give you a minute to come back with the the poem that you would love to share with us and we would love to hear. (laughs) And um, we'll be right back with Cerise right after this. Okay. The new media business model. We live in a world today where broadcast media has fallen from its once lofty pedestal as the primary source of accurate, concise news and information to an industry in a state of panic, faced with the ongoing challenges of monetizing digital news due to the intricate open-source complexities of the Internet. We find that instead of newspapers, magazines, and TV networks being separate entities, We now see that they're only merely divisions of the very same media conglomerate. The end result, we find a culture of networks that have evolved to make truth and accuracy secondary. In the pursuit of ratings, advertising dollars, and the buzz of social media, the news desk, primary focus. The once rare occurrence has become the standard and the code of ethics that held the profession of journalism in check is long forgotten, as well as its often touted quotes that are carefully placed in a network statement of retraction and apology for unvetted news stories gone awry. The factual basis for news has taken a backseat to its emotional value and viral potential. This is so much a part of the new media debacle that you can hardly find news stories, or even a weather report for that matter, that have not been exaggerated with a healthy dose of sensationalism, scare tactics, or unwarranted possible tragic outcomes. Shaping public opinion used to be part of a network's identity that they would reiterate with a daily barrage of blurbs that were meant to educate or reinforce their values or politics that defined their mission and would hopefully make them stand out among their competitors as a unique source. Although media seems to have the full attention of the corporate and political base, it seems to be losing its control and status in the realm of public opinion. Most have given up on trying to drive these opinions and are now relying more and more on trying to follow rather than lead and focus on early discovery and adaptation of social media trends in order to hopefully appear to be in line with public opinion. What? Media trying to fit in and hang out with the cool kids? How does that happen? Look, there's a hole in the wall of new media. But the way I see it, the problem is not with the hole. The problem is the wall. It's what's hidden behind that wall or veil, if you will, is new media's failing. It's no secret that the media has for some time focused on how to earn viewers' loyalty and trust in order to control how and what we think. But the veracity of social media's information exchange has forced new media to rethink their programming and interaction with this new type of viewer that is evolving and growing at a faster pace that can be accurately measured by today's benchmarks. With the on-camera presence of the laptop on virtually every newscast, Media has conveniently presented a viable resource that the viewer could very well use to get the same information. This once sedentary audience is now supplementing their viewing experience with a healthy dose of online multitasking and have become very tech savvy and needs to be recognized as capable of news gathering, critical thinking and fact checking from multiple sources at a moment's notice, voicing their point of view and quickly becoming a viable part of the story through public opinion, which gives them an even greater role on how news is compiled and disseminated. Our world is rapidly changing, as is our response to news stories and the tactics that can be used effectively to captivate audiences. Some of these tactics that are still in use are rapidly becoming outdated. For example, when I hear a news teaser that tells me that I would need to tune in at 10 or 11 to get the full story, I'm no longer at the mercy of the network. As a matter of fact, if I'm indeed interested, I search the topic myself on the internet to find the information that they would want me to wait to hear. And that may or may not be their lead story, by the way. And I find that by the time the story airs at 10 or 11, that one I have more information on the same story that was presented in the newscast. And two, I have already had plenty of time to discuss it in detail with my wife and form my own opinion. Three, tweeted and posted the topic or news story on Facebook, Google, and LinkedIn from the sources that I found. And four, I've had the time to respond to the comments from my network of friends and responders. Five, By the time the story airs at 10 or 11, not only am I not further informed by its 40 to 90 second contribution, I'm also unimpressed. Am I the only one who takes this approach? I think not. This is rapidly becoming the norm. Just as YouTube has fostered a culture of content that is promoted after it's produced based on its organic interest and buzzworthy measure on the social media trend curve, we find that new media's attempts to manufacture or counterfeit this kind of response has led to awkward, failed attempts that merge new media concepts with old production standards that in effect creates a random hodgepodge that often falls short in both production and execution just as Facebook has shown it's far better to go to where the traffic is than to spend the money and resources it takes to drive traffic to you we see a new paradigm in web analytics that has a repeating theme that reveals that the free trending social media solution that everyone is talking about is what is more often the most effective Now that the public has fully embraced this powerful new tool of social media and can now dictate by their actions how and where they would like to receive and align themselves with sources of news and information, it's clear that some changes need to be made. Although I do have some answers due to over a decade in media and some astute observations, I can say this. What is most important in this ever-changing world of new media, information technology, and social media is that new media visionaries stay focused in order to get that first glimpse of what's new on the horizon and project and plan for its potential impact and opportunity accordingly. So it is imperative in order to gain this advantage that, first and foremost, that we're looking in the right direction. Now, I'm confident to say that I am looking in the right direction, and I'm perfecting a system of digital media standards that produce social interaction engines that will easily power the social media vehicle of the day and quickly be dropped into the new media model of the future. It's not as difficult as one might think. We just need to first see our viewers as trusted partners and not a captive audience. I predicted the death of the printed newspaper back in 2004 for this very same reason. Now you would think with all this talk about what's wrong with new media that I would have all the answers. Well, I don't. I promise though that in the near future, it will be very clear that I have taken up the banner to be a key player in this new media transition. And I have committed myself to do my part to rage against the machine. But this is a major undertaking. That although I've laid the groundwork, it will require the support and expertise of some very talented and dedicated individuals. Believe it or not, I think I've got that part taken care of. I have put together my own dream team of visionaries, if you will that are some of the most dynamic, forward, critical thinkers that the industry has never heard of. Well, not in this capacity, anyway. And our unorthodox approach to new media standards will be a catalyst for change and a successful transition. Look, we don't fear change or the future. This is where we live. And once you've had a chance to hang out here for a bit, you'll come to realize that the rumors are all untrue. But honestly, our work has just begun. I could puff out my chest and speculate and make vast projections about this new undertaking. After all, I'm honored and humbled at the task and clear vision that God has given me. Yes, I could say more. But anything beyond that requires a measure of truth. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. You're on live with Cerise Carney-Nunez on The Measure of Truth. Welcome back, Carney. I'm sorry. Welcome back, Cherise.
2: <laughs> I enjoyed that.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I have
2: lots of thoughts on new media, too.
0: <laughs> ah, yeah. You may be one of those I'm talking about.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. That's something that... Um, I'm using ahead of um, this new nonprofit that I've put together. So, yeah, I'm giving people a tease a little bit at a time. So, guys, don't expect for me to say any more about that than what you've just heard. (laughs) Well, Therese, um, are you ready now with your poem?
2: So I would love to share my poem, Nappy, with your listeners. Awesome. Does that Very sound good. does that sound okay? Okay. My yeah. love poem's a little long and I I how about if I email that and you can post it up there?
0: Oh, um, okay. Sure. I
2: I thought I would share the poem nappy because it is um it's actually the entire the, it's the 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 children's book also. Uh but mm-hmm. I'm going to share the version of you the version that I had written for the uh, songs of a sister mom book with you.
0: Okay, and we have 10 minutes, so I think you should be able to make it, don't you think?
2: Oh, yeah, this is a pretty okay. short poem. Okay, short awesome. Poem. And then maybe we can talk about some of the things that um, that I'm doing now, I think, um, that are in the in the area of new media myself.
0: Okay, very okay. good.
2: Okay. All right, so here we are,
0: Cherise with Nappy.
2: So this is a poem that I wrote for, um, it was inspired by me doing my daughter's hair, and uh, one day I was doing her hair, and um, she was, let's just say she's a little tender-headed, and uh, I looked up, and she was pretty much under the chair, under the table, she was squirming around, and I said, I said, Oh, come on, come on. You know, God just gave you this hair because he wanted you to be strong, strong like um, Harriet Tubman. And she looked at me like, What? (laughs) And then she also kind of gave me this look like, "Um, You have a perm. So now, you know, the girl was (laughs) only. She was only four years old, but at the same time she knew who George Bush was, and so I figured why doesn't she know you know these these women who i were I was giving her examples of strength and mm-hmm. so i I decided to write her this poem um called "Nappy" to exemplify uh the strength of uh the spirit of black women awesome, okay, <laughs> little girl, our hair is. Super naturally nappy. It's super abundantly nappy. It's super eminently nappy. Our hair is break the comb nappy. Run out the chair nappy. Scalp just can't bear nappy. Our hair is left hand turn nappy. Be scream for a perm. Nappy perm till you burn. Nappy. Our hair is pull, ouch, twist, ouch, turn, ouch, kink, ouch, coil, ouch, snap, ouch, crack, ouch, pop, ouch. Nappy. But girl, God didn't give us nothing we couldn't handle. It's back of a bus. Nappy, it's underground railroad. Nappy, ain't I a woman? Nappy, laid down with massa. Nappy, and bear his children. Nappy, though misbegotten. Nappy, while picking cotton. Nappy, our hair is. Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Mary McLeod, Rosa Parks, Ella Baker, Josephine Baker, Zora Neale Hurston, Ida B. Wells, Sonia Sanchez, and Angela Davis. Nappy. Because, girl, God didn't give us nothing we couldn't handle. That's it. Ah.
1: (laughs) That was
0: awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Yeah, and your performance was off the chain as well. (laughs) I just want to add that. (laughs) I had to mute my mic eh? (laughs) because, you know, I was over here cracking up laughing at the beginning. (laughs) Wow, that and is And so awesome.
2: that and and so and that's really what I mean uh, Michael about telling the truth to um to 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 people and children are as little as people. Mm-hmm. Um uh and so that version is pretty much the same as the 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 words to that I wrote um that I published in my children's book. I did change where I where I talk about lay down with Massa and Nappy. I said I think I put listen to Massa and Nappy. I but I still talked about his children, no misbegotten, and, mm-hmm. you know, I got a little bit of pushback um, from just a few folks on that because I'm talking about, you know, black women being raped as slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for most kids, it either goes over their heads or if it doesn't, then maybe we need to talk to them about that. So... um but yeah, it's 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 had a pretty good run and um I still get I get lots of requests for for Nappy. I'm very proud of the work.
0: Yeah, well I wanna thank you for doing that one live for us and <laughs> Yeah, I may have to um chop that out and play that on some future shows as well.
2: <laughs> All right. Well you know, I actually uh I actually have a um uh, I I may be able to send you an MP3 version of it. I have a I have a CD of of it as well that I could share with you.
1: Mm, okay.
2: That's awesome. And that really brings us to you know just this new digital age. You know when we are sharing our books and our work through um, through digital means. That's mm-hmm. been part of this revolution of um, in in the publishing world.
0: Yeah, and, um, you know, which brings up a whole new dynamic with copywriting and being able to hold on to your published works and not have someone just steal them and republish them in another country. So what were your concerns when you first decided to go this route?
2: Well, I I – like well, you know I'm a lawyer, so of course, as soon as i um write something, I'll register the copyright um right away mm-hmm. um and you know, I think that we in this day and age uh one of one of the things and hopefully we can um. Uh, talk more about this in the future, but one of the things that I do always um, advise people is actually not to get too caught up on um, trying to protect your mm-hmm. intellectual property, because yeah. quite frankly, in this day and age, you know you're really going to if if you know if I was going to blow up as a you know fam- a, a really famous writer tomorrow. Um, I'm really going to be making most of my money, quite frankly, off of my brand, you know, off yes. of the, off of my marketing, not mm-hmm. necessarily off of the specific piece of copyright that, um, you know, was out there. And so, um, of course, I register um, everything. I register my written works. I've registered my MP3 uh, version of Nappy. I also have um, my my I am Barack Obama book is a dig- is um, a digital book as well, and all of that is of course protected, but quite frankly, if someone were to you know steal my uh copyright and and blast it all over the world, then you know maybe I have. To thank them for that because right. it makes me more popular, right? It's right, all in how right. you look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course it's like be, protect yourself, don't be stupid. But at the same time, just recognize um, as as an author in this day and age, it's all about. Your brand it's all mm-hmm. about marketing, it's all about getting yourself out there and um and 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 just sharing the information and not holding not trying to protect yourself so much that you hold on to the information and nobody ever knows about you right you know it's a it's a common mistake I think that people make
0: mhm and and you have to sort of go with the flow sometimes yes. on these trends because. You know, you can ride the hype and find that you know, you can find yourself in a situation where you would have paid for that amount of attention. And um, you, you just got it, but you may have given something up, but you get more back in return just based on putting something out there at the right time. So,
2: And it's so hard for authors to find um to, to find ways to get the book, their, the word out about their books, and mm-hmm. that really um, brings me to how um, how you became aware of of me, which is through the work that I'm doing with the Book Look.
0: Yeah, which, but um, we've only got two minutes, and I do want to bring you back for a discussion about that. And I um, would
2: love that. I would love that yeah, because if, um, that really is really um, I think the the wave of the future for mm-hmm. um, for folks who are who are really interested in um, in getting their work published is that we've gotta as independent authors we've gotta have new and different ways to uh, let let readers find out about our works and that's what the book look is all about.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Sharish. I really have enjoyed you being on, and thank you for the poetry and just for sharing your whole experience. And I know we're going to hear from you again real soon, so I I just want to thank you and uh, thank our listeners for tuning in. special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And um, before you go, here's a little something to take with you. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes
1: of you. If I may
0: paraphrase Stephen King, the most important things are the hardest things to say. These are the things you feel ashamed of because mere words only diminish the thought. You see, words shrink things that seem limitless when they were in our hearts and minds to no more than just living size when brought out into the open. Oh, but it's more than that, isn't it? You see, the most important things lie too close to wherever your secret heart is buried. Like landmarks to a treasurer, your enemies would love to steal away. And use against you at the worst possible moment. But still, you make revelations that cost you dearly, only to have people look at you like you're crazy, not understanding what you've said at all or why you thought it was so important that you almost cried when you were saying it. Do you know what's even worse than that? Is when the secret stays locked within and you can't get it out. Not for want of the courage to talk about it, but for want of someone who will just listen. Just listen. As someone who spends a great deal of time searching for the truth, the lesson that I've learned from this quote is, If you want the truth, you have to be prepared to release all judgment and be open enough to hear and accept the truth in whatever form it might take. Judgment alters the truth by changing how it's told or presented. Not accepting the truth stops the bearer from sharing the truth. Ignoring the truth kills ambition and is a recipe for disaster and makes success impossible. We all over the years have learned to guard ourselves against deception, but I've also come to realize that In most cases, you don't even have to discover or discern the truth. You just have to let it be and see it for what it is. Maybe you have a story too. It doesn't have to be just like the one we've heard. Hey, I just want to let you know, I'm here and I'm willing to listen. All I ask from you is a measure of of truth.